A number of years ago, there was a uh, British conference on comparative religions, and experts gathered to discuss and, and talk about what, if any, belief distinguishes Christianity from any of the other religions around the world. So as they began to debate, they began to raise different concepts of religion. How about the incarnation? Is that a belief that distinguishes Christianity? Well, they said no, because there's other religions that speak of gods taking the form of humans. Well, how about the resurrection? No, it's not the resurrection either, because other religions have a return from the death in their story. Well, the experts debated and went back and forth till eventually C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And Lewis hears the debate and the discussion and he says, what's all this rumpus about? Now, rumpus, I guess, has to be a word. I've never used it. Maybe you've used it. But Lewis asked, what's the rumpus about? And so the experts explained to Lewis and Lewis responds, well, that's easy. It's grace. The difference between Christianity and any other religious belief is grace. Grace is a difficult concept to understand, and it's sometimes even more difficult to embrace. The idea that God's love would come to us free of charge without any strings attached is a concept that's very difficult for us as humans to understand. But Christianity is a religion primarily of grace. And that means that God is a God of grace. But what is grace? It's a difficult concept to understand. It's not altogether clear in our minds. We talk about it a lot, but we're not always quite sure what we mean about the idea of grace. Words like beauty, benefit, blessing, treasure, they come from the same root that comes with the word grace. Grace, literally defined, means a free gift. It's the concept of the unmerited favor of God. The blessing and the blessings of God. That's grace. And this morning, we're going to continue our study in First and Second Samuel, and we're looking at the life of David, and we're going to look at God's grace in the life of David and God's grace in your life and in my life. David is the man who God himself says is a man after God's own heart. David is the man with an undivided heart for God. But as we saw three weeks ago, even David sins. And when David sins, David sins big. Remember the story? He's on the balcony, he's on the rooftop of his palace one day, and he's looking out over, and he's looking onto the houses and the balconies below, and he looks and he spots this woman. Her name's Bathsheba, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And David, the king of Israel, decides that he has to have Bathsheba. So he calls for Bathsheba, and Bathsheba is brought to him and he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba. But if that's not bad enough, he then finds out that Bathsheba is married. And so in order to cover his sin, he has Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered on the battlefield. David, the man after God's own heart, David, the man with the 
undivided heart for God sins. He commits adultery and he commits murder. He violates the law of God. But we recognize then that God doesn't leave David in his sin. God provides forgiveness for David. We read in Psalm 32 where David writes, look what David writes in Psalm 32. He says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. David writes here, blessed is the man who breaks the law. Why? Because God forgives the man who breaks the law. David receives forgiveness from God for breaking the law. David's slate is wiped clean. There is no more sin on David's account. David experiences the mercy of God. David doesn't die because of his sin. David does not get what he deserves. That is mercy. But the word blessed here, the word blessed in Psalm 32, it's a loaded word. It doesn't just mean mercy. It doesn't just mean that David received God's mercy, that David just didn't get what he deserved. It also means grace. David not only received mercy from God, David received grace from God. David received God's unmerited favor. David received God's blessing. David got what he didn't deserve. David got God's grace. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's found on page 222, 222 of the Bible that the church provides. 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's in 2 Samuel that we read that the prophet Nathan confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. When Nathan confronts David, David confesses. And because of his confession, he receives forgiveness from God. But then as a result of his sin, David's child, David's son with Bathsheba, dies. Now look at verse 24. Remember, David sinned, he's confessed that sin, his first baby with Bathsheba has died, and look what happens next, verse 24. Now, if you're like me, you're expecting something bad to happen here. You're expecting the other shoe to drop. You're expecting David to kind of get hit on again by God, but that's not what happens. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. God gives David and Bathsheba another son. And not just another son, God gives David and Bathsheba Solomon the son who will be the next king of Israel, the son who builds the temple, the son who is the wisest man ever is the son of David and Bathsheba. It's not the son of David and Abigail. This is the son of David and Bathsheba. Now think about this. David commits evil sins. He sleeps with Bathsheba, a married woman. He has her husband murdered. And what does God do? 
Yeah, he forgives David after David confesses. He wipes David's say it clean. David doesn't die. That's mercy. David doesn't get what he deserves. But God does more than wipe David's slate clean. God demonstrates his grace. And he gives David the son. He gives David a son, Solomon, who is going to be the next king of Israel. That is grace. David is now actually better off because he sinned. You heard me right. David is now actually better off because he sinned. Think about this with me for a minute. Remember, Solomon comes from David and Bathsheba. Solomon's going to be the next king. David and Bathsheba get Solomon. This is grace. But you can take this a step further. Think about the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Think about that with me for a minute. Who's in the genealogy of Jesus? David, Bathsheba, Solomon. Without David and Bathsheba getting together and having Solomon, Jesus is in the line of David, Bathsheba, and Solomon. This is a demonstration of God's grace. God gives to David what he doesn't deserve. God gives his favor, his blessing to David in spite of his sin and even potentially because of his sin. This is God's grace in action. So how does this work? Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at how this works. Romans chapter 4, page 798. Romans 4, 798. Now remember, two weeks ago, Jim took us to Romans chapter 4, and he read Psalm 32 in Romans chapter 4 because Paul cites Psalm 32 when he talks about how Jesus justifies the sins of the wicked, how Jesus justifies your sins and my sins. He justifies us as wicked when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for who he is and for what he's done for us. Jesus wipes away our sins. He forgives us. He makes our slate clean. But then in Romans 4 and into Romans 5, Paul begins to elaborate on this concept of justification and he begins to talk more and more about grace, about God's unmerited favor, about his blessing that comes upon us. And when he comes to the end of chapter 5, he writes what is probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And I think when he writes this verse, he still has David on his mind. Look at Romans 5, verse 20, the second phrase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is David's story. David commits adultery and murder, and not only is he forgiven, not only is his slate wiped clean, but God shows his grace on David, and now he is better off than he was before. Now he has Solomon. Where grace, where, excuse me, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now listen to me. 
I am not suggesting even for a moment that God condones or approves of sin. God hates sin. God hates sin so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to rescue men and women from that sin. God hates sin in you. God hates sin in me. And God is going to continue to work in our lives to remove sin from our lives. But what I am saying is this, that our sin is a prerequisite for God demonstrating his grace. It is in our sin that God's grace abounds. It is in our sin that God shows up and demonstrates his grace. The unmerited favor that he shows you and that he shows me. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now it's difficult to get the full meaning of this verse in our NIV translation, we see the word increase. And we see that that word increase is used two times. It's used first about sin, and then where it says grace increased, it's used about grace as well. But this is deceiving, and it's a weak translation because what happens here is in the original Greek, Paul actually uses two different words for our, the same word increase. When he talks about sin and he says sin increased, the word that he uses there is a reference to addition. When he talks about grace increased, when he uses that increased a second time, that word in the Greek refers to multiplication or an abundant excess, an exponential growth, multiplication upon multiplication. So what Paul's saying is where sins are added one by one, Grace is multiplied, and grace abounds, and grace grows exponentially. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, it's really difficult to define or to explain grace. Jesus himself never did. He talked about grace a lot, but it was more in a descriptive manner. He would talk about the flowers blooming on the field or the sun shining on the good and the bad or the bird that gathers seed freely from the ground. Jesus would often tell stories that would describe grace to those around so people could get a glimpse of, of what grace was like. So this morning, I would like to share with you stories of grace. And I don't want you to listen to the story in the abstract. I don't want you to think that, hey, this is a story about somebody out there. I want you to think about how the story relates to you. How God has demonstrated his grace in your life. Or how God is going to demonstrate his grace in your life. His unmerited favor, his blessing. The first story is the story of the prodigal son. It's probably one of the best stories of all. It's probably one of the most famous stories of grace. It's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. It's a story about a man, a wealthy man, who has two sons. He has an older son and a younger son. And one day the younger son comes to the father and he says, Hey, Dad, he goes, I want my inheritance now. 
I want what you are going to give me later. I want that today so that I can go and I can do my own thing. Can you imagine how the father felt? Can you imagine the, the sense of betrayal that the father felt that his son would rather have money than a relationship with his father? But the father divides up the estate and he gives the younger son his portion. And the younger son takes that money and goes to a place where he can do whatever he wants, whatever he chooses. The freedom is his. And he does just that. He parties hard. And you can think about the things that he did. You can think about the alcohol, the drugs, the women. And the younger son does it all. He does the things that his father would not want for him and he lives a life of excess and indulgence and self-focus. But eventually his money runs out and he has nothing. And he finds himself working on a pig farm and living with the pigs. And one day he's sitting amongst the pigs and he says, I wonder what's going on back at my father's house. My father's servants live better than I do. Maybe, maybe I can go back. Maybe I can go back to my father's house and maybe I can live with those servants, with those workers, and I can work just like them and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes because surely they're living better than me. So he decides to, to turn back to his father's house. Can you imagine what's going through the son's mind? Can you imagine the fear, the anxiety, the doubt? How am I going to be greeted? What's my father going to say? What's going to happen when he sees me? Well, the son starts walking back towards the home, and the text says in Luke 15 that when the father saw the son far away. It's as if the father was there looking all the time for the son's return. When the father saw the son far away, the father ran to the son. The father runs to the son and greets him and grabs him and hugs him and kisses him. And the son begins to apologize and it's as if the father doesn't even hear what the son is saying and the father puts the best robe on him. He gives him a special ring. He has this feast, this celebration because his son was lost and now he's found and he's home and the father just hugs and kisses on him. And we say to ourselves, well, is this, is this what the son deserved? Shouldn't the father have asked, well, where have you been? What have you been doing? How'd you spend that money that I gave you? The father doesn't ask any of those questions. The father runs to the son when he's far off and hugs him and kisses him and kills the fatted calf for him. That is grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin was added, grace was multiplied. God running to hug and to kiss the wayward child. 
And that doesn't only happen in Bible stories. There's stories right here today, people connected with Calvary Church, people you may know. I've changed names, but these are all true stories. Michelle, Michelle is a friend of mine. She grew up in a Christian home, but often felt distant from Jesus. She would tell you that her life was a mess. She was married two times, and each time before she was married, she was pregnant. And in the first marriage, the first marriage ends because of her infidelity. The second marriage ends because she has to leave the house to protect herself and her children from an abusive husband. And in her mind, things went down from there because life as a single mother was even more difficult. A life where she was required, where she needed food stamps to help her get by, where she felt terrible when she went to the store to use them, where everything seemed to go against her. And we think to ourselves, well, that's kind of the consequences of bad decisions, isn't it? Two marriages, pregnancy before your marriage and before you're married, and each of them, infidelity, bad choices, that's kind of the consequences. But Michelle, Michelle applied at a local church in the area. And she went to the church for a job, and she thought to herself, this is crazy. There is no way these people are going to give me a job. But guess what happened? She goes in and she tells her story. They know most of what happens and they give her a job. That is a demonstration of God's grace. Does she deserve it? Probably not, but that's where God's grace comes into play. It's his unmerited favor. It's his blessing upon her. And now Michelle looks back and she says, my life is a testimony to God's grace. I sinned, I messed up, I made bad choices. And I turned towards God and I saw him running towards me with his arms open. And when he got to me, he hugged me and he kissed me. My life is a testimony of grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or how about Phil? Phil is a man that listens to sermon podcasts of Jim every week. Maybe he even listens to some of my sermons. He listens to Jim every week. Phil has seven felony convictions. He says that his rap sheet stretches from one end of the United States to the other. And in 1995, he was here in Michigan in Jackson Prison, and he said it was a disgusting place. He said he lived like a dirty, caged animal. His description. And he said there were times when inmates over the balconies would throw their garbage out over the balconies onto the floor below, so much that the floor below was just littered with garbage for days. Sex and drugs were rampant. There was no value to human life. You couldn't show kindness or concern because it was a sign of weakness. And you lived your life thinking that any day could be your last. And we think to ourselves, yeah, well, Phil got what he deserved. Seven felonies. He probably should be in prison. But during his third prison term, Phil says that God came to him and ran after him and grabbed him and hugged him and Jesus turned his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That is grace. It's his unmerited favor. Did Phil do anything to deserve it? No, 
But God shows up and he grabs him and he puts his arms around him. Phil was a long way off, but God grabs him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he makes him his own. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or how about Kim? Kim was raised in a Christian home. At six years old, she accepted Jesus as her savior. She says anytime the church doors were open, her family was there. But she says she lived in a family that was more about rules than relationship. And she said this began to wear on her and it began to disturb her and it kind of caused her to seek her own life and make her own choices and she ends up making poor choices along the way in, in kind of reaction to what she had had. And in that state, she ends up marrying a man who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. She marries a non-believer to get away. And she said she rationalized in her head that that would be okay but it led to many, many difficulties. And it was in that that she started to realize that her decision wasn't the right decision, but now she's married. What is it that she's going to do? How is she going to get out of it? Well, at first it was okay because at first she had the freedom. At first she could make the choices she wanted to make. Her and her husband could do whatever they wanted to do. But then she had her first child. And she began to realize that the spiritual welfare of this child rested solely on her shoulders and it became a burden that was very difficult to bear. A burden that only grew when she had her second child. And now she's feeling overwhelmed because she's living with a man who is not a Christian. And we might say, well, she gets what she deserves. She made the choices. But God didn't leave her. God didn't let her go. So one day, God brings her to a church, a church where relationship is more important than rules. And she starts to notice things around her. And one Sunday, she's there, and a woman sits down next to her, a woman all alone. She's alone, the woman's alone. And the woman says to her, hey, why don't you come to Sunday school class with me today? So she goes to Sunday school class. And she meets people who are warm and welcoming and inviting. And she builds relationship with them. And after a few weeks, she feels comfortable enough to share the fact that her husband is not a believer. So you know what the women do? The women begin to pray. And three months later, her husband receives Jesus. Praise God. That is God's grace. Is that really what she deserved? No, but it's God's grace. It's his unmerited favor. Now this woman is married still to the same man. They have three children who are Christians. They have eight grandchildren, seven of whom are Christians, one who she believes is right around the corner from turning her life over to Jesus Christ. This is grace. And it's crazy, it's ridiculous in a good way, it's scandalous, it's God coming and showing who he is and giving you his blessing and his favor and his benefit. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. One last story. This is Jane's story. And Jane writes her story mirroring Psalm 32 and this is what she wrote. 
when I kept silent about being molested as a child in my confusion that led me into a sinful homosexual relationship, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For eight years, your hand was heavy upon me both day and night as I tried to justify my idolatry. The woman that I lived with in isolation with was my God. We lied to and deceived our family members so we would not experience their judgment. I could, turn to the other, I could turn the other way and find plenty of like-minded people who didn't know Jesus to tell me that I was fine. But your favor continued to rest upon me. You were relentless in your pursuit of opening my eyes so that I could experience your living water, life to the full. And then, after rejection, shame, and a suicide attempt, I acknowledged my sin to you and you forgave me. You opened up heaven and gave me all of the things and more I feared I would never have or experience. A man to become my husband who would demonstrate your best emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Three unbelievably different daughters, each uniquely given to us both by birth and adoption. Had I stayed stuck, I would not have had the privilege, responsibility, and joy of being a mother. In my past, I was selfish only concerned about myself and my needs. You have given me a new heart, concerned for the ones with the most needs, the fatherless, the orphan. And as the homosexuality debate intensifies, through your grace, you have given me compassion and empathy to enter into conversations and relationships I would never have chosen to before had I not sinned in this way. That is God's grace. Idolatry, homosexuality, self-focus. He takes it all and he sees her repentance. He sees her turning towards home and God opens up his arms when she is far off and runs towards her and embraces her and kisses her and demonstrates his grace. This grace is incredible. It's miraculous. It's bountiful. It's stupendous. It's ridiculous. This grace of God, this unmerited favor that he shows upon us in our sin, because of our sin, God shows up and he demonstrates his grace. He did it for David. He did it for the prodigal son. He did it for Michelle. He did it for Phil. He did it for Kim. He did it for Jane. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. There is nothing that can stop God's grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But how about you? Are you sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, but Tom, you don't know what I did. You don't know the sin I've committed. I am so far from salvation or I am so far from God's blessing. And you know what? You're right. I don't know the sin that you've committed. I don't know the sins that you've committed. Idolatry, blasphemy, 
adultery, other sexual sins, envy, greed, gossip, murder. I don't know the sins that you've committed. But I know two things. One, everyone in this room is a sinner. And two, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There is nothing that can hold back the grace of God. There is nothing that you have done that can hold back the grace of God. His unmerited favor is there, just like when the prodigal son turns from his past, turns towards home, and starts walking. The father sees him far off, and the father runs to his son with his arms open. He doesn't wait for the father to get home. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, where have you been? What have you done? How did you spend my money? He opens his arms and he grabs his son and he embraces him tightly and kisses him and says, I am glad you are home. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This should be our cry of hope. This should be what we live by. We should experience it ourselves and we should give it to others so that when people come into this place, they say, you go to Calvary Church, that is a place of grace. That is a place that demonstrates and shows God's grace. There is nothing that you have ever done that can hold back the grace, the unmerited favor of God. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our gracious, gracious, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have told us this morning, that your grace cannot be held back by sin. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning that is feeling the overwhelming weight of their sin, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you. I pray that they would turn to you for your forgiveness and for your mercy and, Lord, for your grace. Lord, show them your favor and blessing. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that we need you. We need you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.